0: an excellent lesson here, uh, going over chapter 2 of this book. Let's bow for a word of prayer and then we'll go through this lesson together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, God, the way that you provide for us, the way that you preserve us. Uh, We thank you above all for Christ. We thank you that you have provided a Savior for us. I pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of who Christ is. Help us to Gain a greater understanding and appreciation for His person and His work. Uh, bless this study, O Lord. I do pray that our devotion to Christ would increase because our gratitude increases all the more. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. I love I love this book um, because of the way that it develops this this uh, topic, and because of where it begins. Instead of going straight to the New Testament and, and drawing out some proof texts, you know to to establish that Jesus Christ is the God-man. Uh, this book starts in a very different place. Uh, it goes all the way back to uh, the beginning. If you remember in the previous lesson, in the, in the first chapter, um, Wellam established that if we're to understand who Christ is and what He has done for us, we must uh, we must do theology from above. We must have the Word of God as our authority for truth. It will do us no good to have a theology from below wherein we try to reason our way to an understanding of Christ or through the process of historical inquiry come to an understanding of who Christ is. Uh, God's Word reveals to us who Christ is and we must submit ourselves to God's revelation uh, to the Holy Scriptures. And this chapter really builds upon the previous one. Who is Jesus is the question. Uh, To answer this question we must turn to Scripture but first to the Old Testament. So there's what I mean. We're not even beginning in the New Testament. We're not proof texting from the New Testament to answer the question, who is Christ and what has he done for us? But we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to deal with the Old Testament first. Well, then asks why. Our understanding of who Jesus is and why he has come is given to us from the Bible's entire storyline beginning in Genesis. Jesus does not come to us in a vacuum or de novo, um, out, of, out of the blue or um, out of thin air, I suppose we could say. Instead, the Jesus of the Bible comes to us from the entire Bible. Individual texts in the New Testament make sense only when they are placed in the context of the Old Testament. This idea should sound familiar to you, um, it reminded me of the sermon that I preached a few Sundays ago uh, asking the question, What is the gospel?" And then really answering the question, What is the gospel from the from the whole of scripture and and from the storyline of Scripture, really, we're doing the same sort of thing with the question, Who is Jesus? We're going to uh, uh, answer that question from the from the whole of Scripture, beginning with the book of Genesis. B. As we trace the Bible's storyline, starting in creation, accounting for the fall, and unfolding God's promise of a coming Redeemer through the biblical covenants, we discover that the Bible unveils the teaching that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. The New Testament teaches this in a very direct and clear way, but it is building upon the the storyline that begins in in Genesis chapter 1. The Jesus of the New Testament fits In the entire storyline, and in fact, if we ignore the storyline, we're not going to appreciate Jesus fully. Section 2, God as the Triune Creator, Covenant Lord. Uh, Here in this section, Wellam talks about theology proper, or the doctrine of God, and he says, he admits, starting with God's identity to identify Christ might seem strange but it's not. It might seem strange to start with theology proper or with the doctrine of God when we're asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? It might seem strange, but it's not. We cannot know who Jesus is, especially as the divine Son, apart from starting with the God of the Bible. He says, consider the way that Paul preached while in Athens, referring here to Acts 17, 16 through 32. This is that passage where when Paul is preaching to to Gentiles, he's not preaching to Jews who have this uh, foundation, this foundational understanding of who God is. He's preaching to Gentiles. Um, he, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't start a long way off in the, the story of redemption, but he takes the Gentiles all the way back to the beginning and, and declares that God is the Creator God from whom all things have come and through whom all things exist. So he mentions that passage here. Consider the way that Paul preached while in Athens. He quotes D.A. Carson then, saying, "...the good news of Jesus Christ, who He is, and what He has accomplished by His death, resurrection, and exaltation, is simply incoherent unless certain structures are already in place." And I I agree with that statement. Really, if if you were to press someone and say, "...who who is Jesus?" And even if they got the answer right, He is God with us. He is the God-man." the Messiah, if you were to press them further and ask, but why did he need to be that? Why, why did he need to be that strange thing, the God-man, You know, the eternal Son of God come in the flesh? It would be difficult to answer that question apart from the whole storyline of the Bible. Uh, Jesus would be incoherent. And it's no wonder then that so many people are willing to abandon the biblical Jesus uh, because they lack a biblical understanding of why it was necessary to have this kind of Savior. Who is God? God is the triune creator, covenant Lord, Wellam says. This truth establishes the central distinction of all theology, the creator-creature distinction. Who is God? He is the triune creator, Lord. He is the maker of heaven and earth and all things within. And with this truth we establish this central distinction. There is the creator and then there is the creature. Uh, there are these two things, these two categories under which all, all things that exist. Are to be placed. As Creator and Covenant Lord, God sovereignly and personally rules over His creation. God is the Holy One. So these are some very basic statements concerning uh, who God is, the question, who is God? How do these basic truths shape our understanding of Christ's identity then? First, the triune nature of God shapes Christ's identity. As we will see in chapter 3, Jesus views Himself as the divine Son. "...who even as incarnate continues to relate to the Father and the Spirit..." Spirit should be capitalized there, that's a typo. "...because they share fully and equally the one divine nature and perfect love and communion." So if we do not first of all understand that the one true God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's going to be very difficult for us to understand what Christ means when He refers to Him as the Son of God. Uh, what, what is meant by this? Well, we need to start with a, a foundation of a foundational understanding of the Trinity. Uh, secondly, by the covenantal character of the Triune God, excuse me, secondly, the covenantal character of the Triune God also shapes uh, Christ's identity. So you'll notice that Wellem is referring to God as the tri, triune creator, covenant Lord. And so he wants us to especially notice that God, enters into covenants with man, but here he is stressing that God entered into a covenant within himself in eternity past. By covenantal, Wellam says, I am first referring to what Reformed theology calls the covenant of redemption. So I wonder if you could remember what the covenant of redemption is from our study on covenant theology. When we talk about the covenants, oftentimes we focus on the covenants that God has made with man in human history... Beginning with the Adamic covenant made with Adam in the garden, afterwards that general covenant of common grace made uh, through Noah with all of creation, then the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants, leading up to their culmination in the New Covenant, which is the covenant of grace. So there we have God making covenants with man. But if you remember in our study on covenant theology, we said there was a there was a covenant made prior to all of these. If I could use that term prior. Um, Uh, Not in time, but in eternity, there was a covenant made between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The scriptures actually speak very clearly about this. That in eternity, uh, before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the earth, uh, the the Father gave the Son the task of redeeming a people uh, unto himself. And the Spirit also had a role to play in this as well. We call it the covenant of redemption. Uh, where the Father gave the Son the task of becoming incarnate uh, to redeem all of God's elect. Uh, John chapter 17 speaks so clearly of, of this, this covenant. I will not read um, it to you in, in its entirety, but it's a wonderful text. It should be very familiar to you by now. Uh, But Jesus prays to the Father and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this is a, a very Uh, interesting text where in the prayer of the Son to the Father, uh, Jesus Christ the Son to the Father we're given a little bit of insight into the mission that the Father gave the Son to do. Uh, And this mission was given to the Son in eternity and here Jesus is praying as our great high priest saying to the Father, I've done the work. Um, I've done the work that you've given me to do. And then he of course goes to the cross soon after this, to, to bring it all to completion, he's saying, The hour is now come for you to glorify me, and the, and the Lord was faithful to do that. So, this is what Wellam is referring to when he talks about the covenantal character of the tribe of God. He's referring to this covenant of redemption, and he says, We cannot understand Jesus' coming and work in the Gospels apart from it being the fulfillment of God's eternal plan and thus a divine work. Jesus was. And is who he is. And Jesus did what he did. Not de novo. Not out of the blue. Or in a vacuum. But he clearly had this awareness. That who he was. And what he was to do. Was in fulfillment to a plan. In fulfillment of a plan. In, in an obedience to a mission. Given to him in eternity. Um, it, it, it It's really troublesome when professing Christians uh, reject this whole aspect of teaching that is so clearly present in all of Scripture, not just the New Testament but also the Old. Uh, This idea that in eternity some were predestined. In eternity some were given to the Son. In eternity the, the Son was given a mission and Jesus came into this world, the Son of God came into this world and became incarnate, being aware of this mission. He came to do the work that the Father gave him to do. It's such an important aspect of, of, of the Christian faith. It's such an important aspect of the gospel. And to reject it, it, it is, is really a terrible thing to do. I agree with Wellam. We cannot understand Jesus' coming and work in the gospels apart from it being the fulfillment of God's eternal plan and thus a divine work. This was the work of God. Thirdly, the lordship of God also shapes Christ's identity. Theologians have captured the majestic sense of God's lordship with the term aseity, literally from oneself. The Lord God is the self-existent and self-attesting one. And then he asks the question, why is this significant for understanding who Christ is? So I think what Wellam is doing here is he's reminding us of the divine name Yahweh, uh, he is the Lord. Uh, he is He is the one who is self-existent. Um, he He is the fire <laughs> that that was that appeared to Moses in that bush that was burning yet not consumed. He is the great I am. Um, we have to remember that that God revealed Himself in these terms uh, to to Moses. and and to those who lived under those old covenant times. But when Christ comes on the scene, he identifies himself with the Lord. He identifies himself with the great I Am. And that is very significant. So again, Wellam asks the question, why is this significant for understanding who Christ is? This idea that God is the Lord, he is Uh, From Himself, He is the great I Am. First, the New Testament repeatedly presents Jesus as Yahweh by calling Him Lord. By calling Him Lord. In biblical thought, no creature can share the attributes of God and bear the titles and name of God unless he is equal with God. And thus, uh, one who shares the one identical divine nature. You see this throughout the New Testament where Christ is claiming to have the authority, to have the power to do things that really only God has the authority and, and right to do. And that's what so enrages the non-believing Jews. They, they hear him uttering blasphemies. You know, the, This man claims to have the authority to forgive sin, right? And it just enrages them because they know that only God has the right to uh, forgive sin, Um. Those great I am statements found in the Gospel of John. He calls himself the I am. Before Abraham was, I am, he says. and Again, it infuriates the non-believing Jews because they understood exactly what he was saying. He was making himself to be God. He was claiming to be God, God incarnate, God with us. And that is exactly the point. Secondly, given that God's will and nature are the moral standard, the sin before this God is a serious problem. How can God remain both just and the justifier of the ungodly. In Scripture, this is a major question that, derives, that drives the Bible's entire redemptive storyline. Ultimately, as God's plan unfolds, this question is answered in a specific person, namely Christ Jesus, who alone can redeem us, precisely because He is the Divine Son who became human to act as our representative and substitute so here in this section, on page 41, Wellam is drawing our attention to, to this, to this quote-unquote problem. Paul talks about how God is both, in this way, God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. I forget the chapter and verse in Romans where he uses that terminology. But, but Paul, after telling us how our redemption has been accomplished, is, it says to us, and, and it's, it's through this process that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Paul is actually putting his finger on this problem. How can sinners be forgiven? How can sinners be made just or right before God without God himself becoming unjust? Do, do you understand the problem? If you have sinners, if you have rebels, what do they deserve? They, they deserve? It would be just for them to be condemned. It would be just for them to be given over to death and to eternal damnation. That's what the judge of, of all the earth ought to do with rebel sinners. He, he ought to judge them and to pardon them um, would, would be an unjust thing. So the problem is, how can someone be made just, a sinner be made just, and yet God r- r- remain just himself? And what Wellam wants us to see here is that um, by the eternal Son of God becoming incarnate and by the eternal Son of God assuming a human nature and living as the obedient second Adam in the place of sinners so that we might have His righteousness imputed to us and by this second and greater Adam uh, suffering in the place of sinners even to the point of death, death on the cross so that our sins might be imputed to Him. In this way, God is both, the, is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So Wellam is right to say that this question is answered in a specific purpose, namely Christ Jesus, who alone can redeem us precisely because He is the Divine Son who became human to act as our representative and substitute. Wonderful observations here. So, you see what Wellam is doing. He's first of all going all the way back to Genesis, saying, Let's answer the question, Who is Jesus Christ from the totality of the scriptures? And let's also begin with the doctrine of God, theology proper. Who is God? He is the triune God, He is the Creator, Covenant Lord. Let's not forget all of that. And with that foundation laid, then we can begin to answer the question, Who is Jesus? Well, He is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity come in the flesh, and He has come in the flesh uh, in obedience to um, the, 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 the covenant, the terms of the covenant that were made in eternity. And He has come in the flesh to redeem fallen sinners and to reconcile them to God in a way where God might remain both, might remain just while He justifies His people. Three, the requirement of covenant obedience. Making sense of the Incarnation requires a second building block, the nature of humans as image sons, that is, image bearers who are sons and thus represent God, and covenant creatures. This terminology here should remind us of the creation and of the creation of Adam as an image bearer of God, an image bearer and a son of God who was made to represent God on earth, Scripture divides the human race as falling under two representative heads: the first Adam and the last Adam. Adam was not only the first man, but also the covenant head and representative of all humanity. And Wellum notes that the first Adam anticipates the last Adam. Central to God's relationship with humanity is His demand of covenantal obedience. Uh, We saw this in the covenant that God made with Adam in the beginning. Uh, God created man and he related to man through covenant. There were terms that were given. There were expectations that Adam was to fulfill. So we must see this as central. Three, this building block gives the rationale for why the divine son must become incarnate for us and why he must be greater than the first Adam. Uh, this this whole, I mean, you, you hear me talk a lot about covenant theology. We've, we've done studies on covenant theology. It comes through in, in my preaching and teaching so often. It's because I truly believe that if we're to understand the scriptures, if we're to understand our salvation in Christ Jesus, we must understand the covenants. Uh, this is how God relates to man. This is how he related to Adam in the beginning, and this is how he has related to his people ever since then. So we must understand uh, these covenants. For redemption to occur, a human must do it, Wellam says. For redemption to occur, a human must do it. He must render the required covenantal obedience. So if, if humanity, if human beings are to be saved, if they're to be redeemed, they need to be redeemed by a human. A human must come and fulfill the terms of the covenant that God has made with him. We, we must have an obedient human being to live in our place and also to die in our place. And I believe that's where Wellam goes next in letter B. Yet the reversal of Adam's sin and all its disastrous effects will require more than a mere man. It will also require the divine son, the true image of God. And here Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1. 1.3 are cited as proof texts. To do the work of God, namely remove the curse, pay for our sin, and usher in a new creation. Adam broke the covenant of works. All who descend from he and Eve are born in a state of sin. So it is impossible for um, any child, any son or daughter of Adam to be the savior of 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 humanity. It's impossible because we are all born in a state of sin. We are born under sin and under the curse of the broken covenant of works. We ourselves do sin. So we are guilty before God ourselves. It's impossible for us to live for someone else or to die for someone else, for we ourselves deserve to die because of our sins. So that is what Wellam is pointing out here, that In order for us to be redeemed, in order for us to be saved, a human must do it, but our Savior cannot be a mere human being. Our our Savior must be something greater, namely God Himself uh, must be the one who saves us. And then in section 4 we go on to the nature of the human problem, central to the covenant, and the purpose of our creation is that our triune God has created humans to know Him to be his image sons, to display his glory, expand the borders of Eden to the uttermost parts of the world. But what happens when humans rebel? Can the divine purpose still be accomplished? This should all sound very familiar to you, especially um, given the study we've been going through in the book of Exodus. You know, uh, can, the, can the divine purpose still be accomplished? Can the eternal temple of God still be ushered in? Can we still enter into eternal Sabbath rest? Can we enter into God's eternal and consummate kingdom? The story of creation and covenant, fall, redemption, Christ, in this story, um, we find that the problem of forgiveness, it is precisely the necessity that God judge human sin and His promised to redeem that together create a tension in the Bible storyline and in covenantal relationships. We cannot save ourselves. We need a representative substitute, but not merely a human one. A no mere human being can set themselves forward as a substitute for others. And so this, this storyline is very important to, to understand, if we're to understand who it, who it is that Christ was and is. Section 5, the triune God saves through the obedience of the Son. The resolution of this tension, of this tension that we've been talking about. We, we need a Savior, but no mere human can do it, right? Um, the resolution of this tension raises the question of just who it is that is qualified to establish God's kingdom on earth and to save us from our sins, God created humans as His image sons to rule over the world, Genesis 1, 26-31, Psalm 8. Yet no one in Adam is able to do so. Who then is able, the answer, Jesus alone as God the Son incarnate. I mean, so have you ever stopped to think about... And I hope, you, I hope you're not offended when I use this word strange. But have you ever stopped to think about how strange the doctrine of the incarnation is i mean it's a it's a it's a mysterious doctrine it's a strange doctrine this idea that in the one person of jesus christ there were two natures the divine and the human so that truly uh, when we when we think of jesus we were to think of god with us you know or have you ever thought of how how strange the doctrine of the virgin birth is it's, it's a mysterious doctrine. Um, this idea that, that Jesus Christ did not have Joseph as his father, but rather was conceived miraculously by the power of God uh, so that he was truly born of Mary. Mary was Jesus' mother, but Jesus had... God as Father, so that Mary could truly be called the mother of God. It's, it's a strange doctrine, it's a mysterious doctrine. Why, why do we need to hold on to that? Like why do we contend? why do we need to continue to teach this? Well you say, well, it's it's what the Bible teaches. Yes. It is what the Bible teaches, and so we might point to proof texts to say this is why we must say it, but I'm, I'm asking you a deeper question. Why does this need to be so? You, you understand? Not only does the Bible teach it explicitly, therefore we must teach it and believe it, but I'm asking the deeper question, why does this need to be so? Why did the Messiah need to be virgin-born? You, you understand um, he needed to be virgin-born so that he would not be a mere son of Adam. So there's, there's, a ra- there's a theological rationale for this that we need to comprehend. He needed to be virgin-born so that he would not be a mere son of Adam. He had to be truly human, thus born of Mary. He had to assume a true human nature and not be a mirage, you know, a, a, you know less than human in some way. But he could not be born under Adam. He could not be born under Adam uh, because then he would not be able to redeem all of us who are born under Adam and thus in sin, under that broken covenant of works. So I'm just trying to point out to you, uh, brothers and sisters, that the, these, these doctrines that are mysterious, they must be believed. They must be confessed. There's a reason for them. They are essential. If If we do not have a Savior who is the God-man, we do not have a Savior at all. you understand? If Jesus was merely human, but just the greatest of all humans, we do not have a Savior. Uh, a, a great human cannot save us. We need, we need a human to save us, but he, he must be divine. He must be God with us. He must be something other than just a mere son of Adam. So the, the resolution of this tension... Uh, raises the question of just who it is that is qualified to establish God's kingdom on earth and save us from our sins. God created humans as His image sons to rule over the world, yet no one in Adam is able to do so who then is able to answer Jesus alone as God the Son incarnate be. The Bible teaches this truth by the unfolding of God's plan through the biblical covenants in fulfillment to the promise to reverse the effects of sin through His provision of a seed of the woman, referring back to Genesis 3.15. Again, this should all sound familiar to you in all of our talk of covenant theology. The Bible teaches this truth by the unfolding of God's plan. Excuse me, my eyes jumped up uh, to the previous line again. First, God's promise unfolds through the covenants with Noah, Abraham, Israel, and David. Scripture teaches that the fulfillment of God's promises will be through a human But scripture also identifies this anointed one, the Messiah, with God. Second, how does God's kingdom come in its redemptive new creation sense? A, over time, God's saving kingdom is revealed and at least in an anticipatory form. I say in the form of kingdom prefigured. Does that language sound familiar to you? It it should. It comes to this world through the covenant mediators, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, and most significantly, David and his sons. Yet the Old Testament repeatedly reminds us that none of these covenant heads are the one. David and his sons ultimately point forward to the coming of David's greater son, who truly obeys and inaugurates God's saving reign through the ratification of a new covenant and all that it signifies. So this is wonderful. The question is being asked, okay, and I've taught you this terminology. The kingdom was offered to Adam, but forfeited. Right? kingdom was offered to Adam, but forfeited. Now the question is, can God's eternal kingdom still be brought into existence? Can it happen? Then there's a promise made. So the kingdom was promised even to Adam and to Eve. That promise was greatly expanded in the days of Abraham. And remember, I've taught you that in the days of Moses, the kingdom of God, though it was not present in power, the kingdom of God was present on earth um, in a a prefigured way. It was prefigured amongst old covenant Israel. I hope you have gotten this in, in our study of the book of Exodus Right, Exodus. In, in, in the book of Exodus, we see that God's eternal temple, God's eternal Sabbath, God's eternal kingdom uh, were pictured on earth. Pictured on earth, um, within Old Covenant Israel, and, and all of that really comes to its apex uh, through the covenant that God made with David, King David and his sons. Uh, the, 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 the picture of God's kingdom on earth really came to its apex in the days of King David when the kingdom of Israel was most firmly established and in, and in the kings that descended from David. There the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, was, was pictured on earth. But Wellam is, is completely right to say that throughout the Old Testament the message in, is this, none of these are the one. None of these are the one. So that a promise was given to Adam and to Eve that through her offspring, one would arise who would crush the, who would crush the serpent's head. And then you have Adam and Eve, they have a child. His name was Abel. and I think there are indicators in the text there that Eve was hopeful that this was the one. I mean, what, wouldn't you wonder? This promise has been given to me that one of my offspring will crush the head of the serpent. Perhaps this is the one. But then what happens? Cain rises up and kills Abel. Another is brought into his place. Um, That that theme just goes and goes and goes. Remember how we have um, often made note of how the Old Testament scriptures emphasize the failings of the patriarchs? And we've said this is a strange way to write history, isn't it? Um, nations don't typically do this. Usually you have history in the form of propaganda, <laughs> where it's it's all of the good things that are emphasized and all of the bad things about a nation and its great leaders that are de-emphasized. But when you read the Old Testament Scriptures, you, you see the the opposite happening. Oftentimes it's the failings of the patriarchs that are emphasized. Abraham's failings in regard to his wife, Sarah, saying that, She's merely his sister, etc. etc. Even when we come to that apex point where King David is exalted to the throne, a man after God's own heart, but we see his failings emphasized in his sin with Bathsheba. What's the point of all of this? It, the, the point is not first and foremost that we are to like emulate these men, they're not put forward as moral examples for us ultimately, um, but rather. By emphasizing their failings, this is the message. Not the one. Not the one. Not the one. David, a great king within Israel, not the Messiah though. One of his sons will be the Messiah. So on and so forth. Uh, so it, it's a very important theme to notice. The kingdom was offered to Adam, forfeited. The kingdom was promised in the days of Adam and reiterated these promises were reiterated all the way until the coming of the Christ, but in the days of Moses, and especially in the days of David, this kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God, was prefigured or symbolized or pictured on earth. but this was not the work that God came to do ultimately the work that he came to do that, that he would do would be done by the Messiah, uh, Christ Jesus the Lord. Be. Jeremiah 31 is probably the most famous New Covenant text in the Old Testament although, although the teaching on the New Covenant is found in all the prophets so this is not the only text but Jeremiah 31 is probably the most famous Jeremiah f- focuses on what is truly central to the New Covenant namely the promise of the complete forgiveness of sins you may read Jeremiah 31-34 In contrast to the Old Covenant sacrificial system, those are my words, just to connect dots here. Thus, under the New Covenant, what is anticipated is the perfect fellowship with God and His people and the dwelling of God with us in a new creation, ultimately the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. This is right. When I'm I'm teaching you about the tabernacle and when we learn more about the sacrificial system uh, that was carried out there in the tabernacle. Um, and when we talk about the shedding of animal blood and the washing away of sins you know that took place as a result of the shedding of animal sacrifices, we must understand this, that sins were not f- forgiven in the sense that consciences were cleared, but rather people were made pure before God only in an earthly sense. It's ceremonial, you see. So that an Israelite who became... Un, impure before God could be made pure again through the means that God gave to Israel under the Old Covenant. But the book of Hebrews is so clear about this. Um, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sins, actually. Uh, consciences weren't cleared. People were not made right with God through the Old Testament sacrificial system. Our consciences are only cleared and our sins are only taken away really and truly, and we are only made right with God through faith in the Messiah through faith in the Christ who, who came and died and rose again for sinners. Uh, either faith looking forward to Him under the Old Covenant or faith looking back to Him now that He has come. So Wellam is right to, to look to Jeremiah 31 and say, here is the real difference between the Old Covenant and the New. The Old Covenant didn't really take away sins, um, but the New Covenant does. Uh, and it, 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 we, we must understand that. Thirdly, we can now take the Bible's covenantal storyline and see how it identifies who Christ is. Who is able to fulfill all God's promises? Who is able to inaugurate His saving rule in this world and achieve the full forgiveness of sins? The answer, God alone. God must do it. God must do this work, brothers and sisters. But as the covenants teach, God has promised to save through another David a human, one who is also identified with Yahweh. As Jesus arrives on the scene, this is precisely how the New Testament presents him. In Jesus Christ, all the law and prophets are fulfilled. So God must do this work. No mere human can do it. But God determined to do this work through incarnation, by assuming a human nature, and thus being the second Adam for us, thus being uh, the one greater uh, than David, the one who actually has taken away all of our sins. Uh, This is a good reminder that to know who Jesus is, we must know him from the entire Bible. Again, Jesus does not come to us in a vacuum, but within the Bible's storyline, framework, and categories. By the way, this is why... um, This is why I'm an amillennialist, too, if we want to talk eschatology. Um, I think that amillennial system that I've taught you, that I taught you long ago when we went through the book of Revelation and even before that in classes that were offered, I think it is important to see that Christ inaugurated His new creation at His first coming. And He began to rule and to reign when He ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down there so that He is Lord Most High now. And that will be brought to a consummation at, at the end of time. I know that's out-of-the-blue sort of statement there, but I think it is that amillennial perspective, this idea that we're not waiting for a future reign of Christ in any sense, but He is ruling and reigning today. The, the, the term amillennialism could be misleading because the, the A... Prefix there means no or not, so no millennium. Well, no future millennium, but we believe that there is a millennium. Christ is ruling and reigning presently at the Father's right hand. And when He comes again, He's not going to establish some sort of earthly rule and reign. um, In the way that was done under Old Covenant Israel, there's not going to be some earthly rule and reign of Christ that's reestablished that's short of the new heavens and new earth. He is going to bring his kingdom to a consummation in the new heavens and new earth. So his reign will be earthly, but it'll be finished. It'll be completed. It won't be um, anything short of the consummation, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. I kind of struggled through this lesson, to be honest with you, but um, you struggled with me. Any questions? In the very little time that we have left. Danny, yeah. Can it also be said when you were talking about why Jesus didn't have an earthly father that had to be the son? Was that also so that the sin nature would not pass through him? Yes, I think so. Yep. Yes. all who are born to Adam are born in sin. And so, with, with Christ, you have, that, you have that broken, given the virgin birth. So, he had a true human nature, but one that was brought into existence by God in a supernatural way. So, we will come to, to see this. He had a true human body, he had a true human soul. And under that category, that means he had a true human mind, a true human will, and true human affections. He was truly human body and soul, but he was not born under Adam the way that the rest of us are. And I think, yes, the virgin birth has everything to do with that. Otherwise, it would not have been necessary. Um, To state it another way, it's not as if Jesus, the Christ, was brought into this world in the same way that we all were brought into this world through the process of uh, procreation in that the second person of the Trinity the Triune God possessed a human person uh, we, we, we wouldn't want to say that but rather the human person body and soul was brought into existence supernaturally and for the express person for the express purpose of the second person of the Trinity assuming that human nature um, so that Jesus could be our Savior and 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 not be guilty himself, not born in sin. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this book. Um, these are these foundational things are very important, and we have a couple of more really foundational uh, chapters to consider in part one. Notice in part two, we're, we're going to get to some of the more technical uh, theological considerations under. The heading, Theological Formulation, The Establishment of Christological Orthodoxy, and we'll talk about Chalcedon and um, all of the terminology that was established for us there at the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, really helpful stuff. I think you'll enjoy it very much. Let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Father in Heaven, uh, we, we do ask that you would give us aid, O oh Lord. I pray that we would uh, grow in our understanding of why Christ had to be what He is, the God-man, God, I pray that you would increase our understanding of the fact that you truly were with us and are with us. uh, That you suffered uh, truly in our place, in the person of Christ, um, according to the human nature. I I pray that you would be um, even more eminent to us, that our love for you would grow, that our appreciation for you would increase. Lord, help us in this study, we pray in Christ's name.